1: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years, and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
3: Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's pacaso.com.
0: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
4: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
4: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: First of all, if I sound a little weird on today's podcast, I apologize. I recently had some wisdom teeth taken out, and my mouth is not completely healed, so I may sound a little, uh, what's the word? I don't know. Like you've uh, got no. cotton in the back of your mouth? Yeah, yeah. A bit, a bit. But you
4: might seem wiser. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Or at least you've dumped that vestigial junk in your mouth, you know what I'm saying? That's
1: right. We had the whole episode in the past on parts of our bodies that we've abandoned and no longer need and yet they're still around and then the question of well have we really left them behind completely maybe they do have a purpose just a purpose that we don't have to use as much in uh, modern times so So i was thinking about that a little bit over the past few days
4: i bet especially with some of your painkillers
1: yeah yeah yeah
4: All right, so what are we talking about today?
1: Today we are talking about falling out of airplanes or falling in airplanes either way you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. What is your philosophy on this? You've flown. But what is it like? What goes through your mind when you're taking off when you're landing? When you're up there, are you okay. afraid of falling in the plane? Do you have a survival plan in mind? What's your deal?
4: Uh, I don't really have a survival plan in mind, although after this podcast, I know I will. But I think that everybody, to some degree, is very frightened of the proposition of crashing in a plane, right? Because a plane seems crazy to us at some level, that we could be at 30,000 feet in the air, supported by these wings that are just dealing with, with the pressure of air mm-hmm. that's forcing them upwards and keeping us afloat. So... My feeling is that everybody has had some level of anxiety, especially after you've ever experienced a really bad flight or even just a somewhat bad flight.
1: Yeah. I mean, on a basic level, we're going to a place where man does not belong. And, and, we, and, and we know it. You're up really high. And if that plane were to plummet, and sometimes they do, there's a very good chance that it would kill us
4: true. And, I mean, again, you're hurling through the air in a metal capsule. You have no control whatsoever. Yeah, over that's a big situation. thing,
1: too. No control. The control of the airplane is in the hands of people on the other side of often a locked door. Mm-hmm. You're told to sit in an appropriate place. You're told when to get up, when to sit down, when you can go to the bathroom. And, uh, you know, especially if you're a control freak, that can be a very intense situation. And add in some claustrophobia on top of that, and, and you got quite a stressful time on your hands.
4: Well, and then you look at the chump next to you, and you think, is this person really going to help out? Yeah. You know, when the <laughs> everything hits the fan. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Well, it's been my experience that in the past on flights, I'll be kind of concerned taking off where I'm like, oh, this could be, this could be it. This could be the last flight, right? And then as I get going, if I am seated near annoying enough people, uh-huh. I'll end up focusing on that. And by the end of the flight, I will be wishing that we would crash into the ocean. So it is, my irritation with, with my fellow humans ends up uh, exceeding my fear of death in the airplane.
4: All right. Well, before we play into everybody's fears about falling and crashing, let's actually talk about how this is truly an irrational fear. Yes. Okay. So despite the horror stories that we hear about plane crashes, the, the real lesson here is that people will actually make it through crashes more often than not. According to the National Transportation Safety Board, 95.7% of passengers involved in plane crashes survive. The majority of airplane accidents involve only non-fatal injuries and aircraft damage. Okay, so I mean, if you think about a flight taking off or landing, that's usually when you have some sort of crash situation. So, just so everybody knows... Yeah, that's the um, the
1: rule of plus three minus eight. Plus the first three minutes and the last eight minutes of the flight. Mm -hmm. Those are the times when you statistically have the greatest chance of something happening.
4: Right. So, yes, that's probably when people are most nervous, but you should know that these flights are mostly survivable. So let's also talk about flying versus driving, because this gives us a really good hold on what your chances are of perishing in one of these two ways.
1: For starters, I should mention that the number of successful flights worldwide in 2011 alone, 38 million, 2.8 billion passengers that were flying safely in just Mm -hmm. that year alone. Okay. And that relates to a fact that I would use early on to, I mean, I was never like super afraid of flying, but I would would get a little tense and I would just remind myself, when is the last time I saw on TV that an entire basketball team was wiped out or an entire roster of a wrestling promotion or people that fly on a regular basis and they're still flying and they've been flying their whole lives. Mm -hmm. If crashing were really that huge of a possibility, it would just be like every year you'd see a basketball team just go down in flames. And so that's what you see here. An enormous number of people fly every Mm -hmm. day, and the vast majority of them are not perishing. And then when you look at it compared to cars, all right, if you look at the total, we're looking at 34,295 transportation fatalities in the U.S. alone in 2010. Mm -hmm. If we break those down, we have 12,435 from passenger cars, pretty extensive. Mm -hmm. And then we have 672 from boats, recreational boats, And then only 472 from all aviation.
4: And I do think it's interesting to note, too, that in 2008, the U.S. fatality rate was less than one per billion passenger trips. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then if you compare that to the U.S. road fatalities of 35,000 and up... That's quite a difference, right?
1: Yeah. The global accident rate for Western-built planes actually improved in 2011, going from about one crash for every 1.6 million flights to one crash for every 2.7 million flights. And those stats, by the way, are from this awesome infographic that works created for a Curiosity website. Mm-hmm. I think I've linked to it before on the Facebook page, and I'll link to it again with the blog post that accompanies this podcast.
4: So what we're seeing here is a... A manifestation of our psychological fears, right? There's a good study that actually plays this out and it's a study of the impact of 9-11 on road fatalities. So in 2005, Garrick Blaylock wanted to measure the psychological effects of fear of flying, Uh, with 9-11, of course, as the context, since the public had suddenly shunned flying for fear of more unfolding terrorist plots.
1: Yeah, everyone remembers how this went down. Um, 9-11 occurred. You had these hijacked planes. You had these fatalities, Mm -hmm. and people got tense about flying. The flight industry got tense about people flying. Everybody was tense. And so a lot of people ended up, instead of taking that vacation that involved a flight, they scaled down and they decided to drive instead. So you have more people on the road. They're feeling safer, right? Because when's the last time a terrorist attack occurred on a Honda?
4: Yeah, but exactly. But, uh, well. It's possible, I suppose. Uh, but this actually increased people's exposure to fatal crashes. Americans wound up suffering extra fatalities, and Laylock said that our findings reveal an additional 242 road fatalities per month for the period from October 2001 to December 2001.
1: Yeah, they calculated 1,200 extra fatalities, which is more than died in the 9 11 air crashes themselves, just the crashes, right. mind you. Right.
4: So, okay, th- we've thrown some stats at you guys, we're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to talk about how to best survive a crash and a free fall.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
3: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com,
1: where America goes to hire. All right, we're back. And I want to point out just to throw one more alarming and comforting stat if you're flying. One in five million. That's the approximate odds of dying in a plane crash in the United States. The odds of dying in a car crash, 1 in 85. Okay. If you're listening to this prior to your flight or on your flight, breathe a sigh of relief. If you're driving while listening to this, <laughs> look around you. Tighten up. Be
4: very careful. Maybe uh, turn off the
1: podcast. I don't know. Yeah,
4: yeah. Okay, so you're up in the air. Let's talk about who statistically is going to survive a crash.
1: Well, birds, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh,
4: not all birds, right? Well, true, There have true. been quite a, a lot of birds crashing with planes lately.
1: Yeah. yeah. Insects Beings that are composed either of water or have a less compact body system going on, right?
4: Okay. All right. According to Popular Mechanics, their article, How to Fall 35,000 Feet and Survive by Dan Keppel, says that statistically it's best to be a flight crew member, Mm -hmm. a child, or traveling in a military aircraft, and that over the past four decades, there have been at least a dozen commercial airline crashes with just one survivor. And of those documented, four of the survivors were crew and seven were passengers under the age of 18. Now, for the crew members, it's easy enough to explain this. They have better restraint systems. And Mm -hmm. as we'll talk in a little bit, if you were to survive a crash and say that the plane sort of just split in half Mm -hmm. and you were hurtling through the air, it would be better to be in your seat. But I don't want to get into that quite yet. The big question is why do children survive, and there's no consensus on this. But there is this idea that children under the age of four, especially under the age of four, have more flexible skeletons, more relaxed muscle tonus, mm-hmm. and we actually so talked about tensing up exactly. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this concept before. Um, I believe it was getting shocked uh, or, or uh, surviving lightning bolts. Uh, lightning bolts, lightning bolts Mm. (laughs) coursing through your body, that if you happen to be picked up by a tornado or some other force and dumped on the ground, it would be better if you were kind of out, if you'd been hit. I think the example was if you'd been hit by, say, a lamp first. Right. Because if your body is relaxed, it's much more apt to actually deal with the shock of being put down by a tornado in another place. Anyway...
1: We, we, this often comes up in discussions of drunk driving fatalities as well, obviously, that mm-hmm. uh, you have a situation where the drunk driver is more out of it, and therefore they're less tense. Yeah. Whereas the sober individual is more tense, understandably, when someone slams into them, and then the survival rate is sometimes better for the actual drunk driver in the scenario.
4: So kids, they have more relaxed muscle tennis so that's what we're actually talking about here. And then a higher proportion of subcutaneous fat, which helps to protect internal organs. Padding. Uh, right and then smaller people whose heads are lower than the seat backs in front of them are shielded more
1: hmm. so short chubby children with a relaxed attitude about life
4: yeah meditating yeah no i mean uh, that's not actually funny to talk about it. but um
1: we can find humor in it
4: uh, yeah well i mean you know it's, We're talking it's about a serious survivors subject here. it's a serious subject so that is why they think that those are the folks that tend to survive crashes so it's good to be <laughs> in, a, in a better restraint system or shrink yourself The safest place on the plane. Now, this, I have come up against different information Mm -hmm. on this. Popular mechanics analyzed data from every commercial jet wreck in the United States from 1971 to 2005, and they concluded that people sitting near the tail have a 40% higher chance of survival than those sitting in the front.
1: Well, one of the classic examples we'll look at in a little bit was a tail gunner in a B-17, so...
4: Yeah, yeah. And then there's other data that says if you are sitting about five seats from the exit doors, then you're in better shape. But some other people say that's only in the case of a fire because the proximity of the door really gives you an advantage.
1: Another good place, the Escape from New York, Air Force One escape pod, if you remember this from the movie. Uh, No, Uh, I
4: don't. Is this the Bruce Willis No, no,
1: no. This is Kurt Russell in John Carpenter's epic. uh, Oh,
4: no, Yeah. yeah.
1: Donald Pleasance played the president, strangely enough. British, Donald Pleasants, and he climbs in it, and it, like, falls out of the plane and bounces.
4: There's another strategy. And then there's the golden time.
1: Yes, the golden time, which isn't as happy and stress-free as it sounds. But this refers to the critical 90 seconds immediately following impact. So in a survival crash, obviously you have fatalities that occur when an aircraft hits the ground. But then after the plane has hit the ground, what happens? Hazardous chemicals are released. Things begin to set fire. Things start to get out of control. So you have about 90 seconds after you hit the ground where you need to flee the vessel.
4: Yeah, and I think this this is particularly important in takeoff and landing crashes, right? Mm -hmm. Because these, again... That's why they
1: have the whole slides and everything, uh, the inflatable slides, because the whole idea is something's gone wrong. And even if it's just a a matter of the plane getting whacked up a bit Mm -hmm. or doing a very rough belly landing. We need to get everyone away from it because the vessel is potentially compromised at this point.
4: Right, so those 90 seconds are your chance to calm yourself and try to think rationally and logically. Right. Those are the people who tend to survive more if they can harness that and not panic and freak out. Another thing I wanted to point out to is that according to the FAA, FAA, using the brace position is three times safer than sitting upright in a crash. So there actually okay. is a, a point to the whole the brace, you know. the Duck and cover. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So just in case you thought that was something that was created to make you feel better about the flight, like, you know, sort of like they say, oh, you've got your floating cushion underneath. And sometimes I think, really, is that just psychological, you know?
1: Yeah. That
4: actually is helpful, as well as the floating cushion.
1: So let's say you are falling. Either the plane has split open mm-hmm. and you're you've been thrown free of it, or miraculously you've managed to work your way to an exit and have thrown yourself out of the plane. Now you're just, you're falling. Okay. How boned are you at this point?
4: Well, gravity's pulling you toward Earth, and you're going faster, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it in that perspective. And like any moving object, you create drag more as your speed increases. And when downward force equals upward resistance, acceleration stops, and you max out. And the Popular Mechanics article put that max about, usually, like the average about 120 miles per hour. So right now you know that unless you can create more drag and you can slow down a bit, you're probably going to make impact at 120 miles per hour on something, right? Yeah.
1: The terminal velocity thing's really interesting in terms of survivable falls. Mm-hmm. Radiolab did an episode a couple of years back now about falling, and they had a segment that dealt with the reality of cats falling out of high-rise windows in New York City, which they do. You know, cats, they're locked up inside, and they all have that intense call of the wild. They and want- they have nine lives. Well, yeah, they yeah, have nine lives, and they desperately want to get outside and eat some grass and puke and eat some birds and, and <laughs> puke a little more and lay in the dust and roll around in it and all that stuff. So inevitably, somebody opens a window, leaves it cracked or something, and mm-hmm. a cat will go out, get a little overexcited, and plummet. And uh, in this particular radio bit, they talked about how there's like a lower level range, of course. Mm-hmm. Cats are are very agile, and they're good at surviving falls from low levels. So certain lower stories on a building, everything's good. Then there's a mid-range where the cat is pretty much boned. Right. Because it's going to be a lethal fall. But then there's an upper level where suddenly survivalism kicks back in again. And it has to do with terminal velocity. Mm -hmm. The argument here is in these scenarios, cats fell far enough that they achieved terminal velocity, and they were spread out, and then they were able to... Manage their fall Mm -hmm. successfully. It's kind of the argument here.
4: Well, and that's interesting you say that. There's a stat from the Geneva-based Aircraft Crashes Record Office, and they say that about 118,000 people have died in more than 15,000 plane crashes between 1940 and 2008. Okay, uh, a confirmed or plausible accounts of live to tell about incidents is only 157. And of those 157, only 42 occurring at heights over 10,000 feet. So to your point, the higher up, obviously, the more of a drop and the more terminal velocity. You talked about managing the fall. Yes. This is a really interesting concept.
1: Well, first of all, as the Popular Mechanics article points out, one thing you can do is if you see a piece of the plane floating Mm -hmm. there, falling with you, rather, not floating, uh, (laughs) you can wedge yourself in there you might have an increased chance of survival.
4: Right. The more debris that you can kind of land on top of, the better, right?
1: 1972, Serbian flight attendant by the name of Vesna Vulović. She was in a DC-9 over Czechoslovakia. It mm-hmm. blows up. She ends up falling 33,000 feet wedged between her seat and a catering trolley in this section of the aircraft, and she ends up surviving. So severely injured, but yeah. survives a 33,000-foot drop.
4: There's actually a term for this called wreckage riding.
1: Wreckage riding.
4: Yeah, so if you can kind of gather yourself around that debris, the better. And thirty-three thousand feet is that is incredible. Of course, she sustained some serious injuries, but she lived to tell about it. So there's another person named Julianne Kopczyk. Mm-hmm. On Christmas Eve, 1971, she was on uh, an airplane and it was traveling over the Amazon when it exploded, and. She woke up on the jungle floor. She was strapped into her seat. Again, this is important. The seat helped, mm-hmm. you know, with her fall in terms of cushioning her fall. She was surrounded by fallen holiday gifts. She remembered advice from her father, a biologist, that because she, obviously she was like, I'm very hurt here, but I have survived it. And she mm-hmm. sort of just compartmentalized. She remembered the advice from her father, which was to find civilization. When lost in the jungle, you should follow water. So she's got a broken collarbone. She's got maggot filled injuries, mm-hmm. right? And she's wading through all of these streams until she gets to bigger and bigger bodies of water. And then finally she finds a canoe. It takes her like forever to get in the canoe because again, she's injured and she gets to the banks where she finds some lumberjacks and it takes her like, two hours to scale this hill before she can, they finally oh, wow. see her. But again this is this is really interesting survival information that it's best to leave the plane crash if possible because that's really going to up your chances of survival.
1: But before you can leave the plane crash of course you have to hit the ground. Yeah. It's it's yeah. unavoidable. The fall is one thing but it's that sudden stop at the end. There was a Kids in the Hall sketch back in the day where an individual has a parachute on and they're doing some Mm skydiving. And the first person jumps out, his his chute doesn't open, and he splats on the ground. The second one does it, splats on the ground. I think there's a third, too. And the whole time, there's a guy back in the line and he's doing running the stats in his head. He's like, what are the chances of one person dying during a skydive? And he's calculating those odds. And what are the chances of two? What are the chances of three? And then he finally convinces himself that his best odds are to jump out without a chute and to hit the ground running. That if he's running fast enough in midair, (laughs) he'll survive. Um, That is not one of the the, the tactics that we ran across. Today's episode is
0: brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right.
1: There are basically two schools of thought. First of all, you want to be like that cat. You want to be like that skydiver mm-hmm. during the fall. You want to spread out so that you can you can I achieve think of terminal velocity. I a flying reaction. squirrel. Yeah. Yeah. So you can achieve terminal velocity.
4: Well, and cuz you're slowing yourself down a bit and you're able to maneuver a little while. Yeah. And of course, here's the thing though, once you the impact is imminent, you've got to change your body position mm-hmm. because that, that would obviously result in a splat right there.
1: According to a 1942 study in the journal War Medicine, they would argue for staying more or less in this position. They're saying wide body impact is ideal. Which makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, it's kind of like if you're on thin ice, you want to spread out, right? You don't want all your weight pushing down.
4: But then a 1963 report by the Federal Aviation Agency argued that shifting into the classic skydiver's landing stance, feet together, heels up, flex knees, and hips, was the best to increase survivability. Because I really see the other one as being sort of a vehicle for splatness. Yeah. And then there's this idea of landing in water, which preferably you should not.
1: Yeah, preferably you shouldn't because... Ultimately, landing, quote-unquote, in water is mm-hmm. going to be like landing, quote-unquote, in concrete. The concrete is not going to give. There's going to be no bounce uh, to that. Well, there's going to be some bounce, but it's not going to be the concrete that's going to be doing it. Likewise, hitting water to high speed, if you've ever done a belly flop into a pool, <laughs> right, that's a good imagine that from 33,000 feet. Uh, yeah. It's going to be like hitting concrete. You're going to bust apart on it, and then those pieces are going to sink, but only after you've made impact. Unless you position yourself like a pencil.
4: Right. And, again, it's not at 33,000 feet that you're free-falling. Let's right, say you, right. you hit it at after 1,000 feet. Yeah, there's this idea of the knife-like entry. Right. Okay, so I guess you can think of yourself as sort of like just dipping in with your feet as flexed as possible. Yeah,
1: feet and flexed and, for God's sake, clench your butt.
4: They do say this. They say this. They say for obvious reasons. Not
1: joking around here. Clench
4: your buttocks if you're going in in that direction. And they do talk a bit about divers um, in Acapulco.
1: Cliff divers. They do a position where they Mm -hmm. go head first. They're jumping off cliffs, not airplanes, obviously. Lock their fingers, interlace their fingers, hold that above their head, Uh and do so in a way that protects the head. Because that's the big thing. Your head is obviously a very essential part of your anatomy. And if it's hitting the water anywhere near first, it's going to need protection, even though nobody wants to take it right in the face. Because, you know, obviously that's the (laughs) moneymaker. If you had to choose better, the front of the face and the back of the head.
4: Right, right. So just don't worry about vanity. If you had to, that's what you would want to expose, that part of your head. Right.
1: Now, most of the world is water, so there's a good chance you won't have any choice but to land in water. Yeah. But if you're over land, your options are a little different. Obviously, you don't want to aim for the concrete. That would be bad.
4: A big, giant, fluffy pile of cotton would be ideal.
1: Yes, something that's going to give, that's going to cushion the fall. But amazingly enough, things like a glass roof. Can actually help.
4: Oh, right, right. This is uh, World War II, right?
1: Yeah, this is a man. We mentioned the B-17 earlier. Mm-hmm. The B-17 was a classic American bomber from World War II. Beautiful aircraft. This guy was the tail gunner, Alan McGee. His B-17 was blown up on a 1943 mission over France. He survived a 20,000 foot crash into a train station through a glass mm-hmm. glass roof. And then he was... Subsequently captured by German troops. But, who uh. Who were
4: amazed. Yeah, they were amazed. They were like, that's amazing. You're under arrest.
1: And if you're going to be captured by the Germans during World War II, better that you're an aviation dude because they did receive better treatment. Obviously, this guy probably got a few slaps on the back from these guys. And Which broke a couple
4: more ribs. Yeah,
1: probably. But the thing is, he fell through the glass. And even though nobody wants to fall through a pane of glass, Mm -hmm. it does cushion the fall a little bit. It, It slows you down a little before you hit the stone underneath. Right. And he eventually hits, you know, concrete or stones. You see a similar thing, oddly enough, in pro wrestling, where in some of the matches that involve people... Falling, they'll fall through tables. I'm sure a lot of you have seen this, where they'll have like a folding table set up Mm -hmm. at ringside. Somebody will fall off the top of the turnbuckle and they'll go through the table and then hit the concrete floor. The crowd tends to go wild because it makes this awesome noise and you see wood breaking and it looks like a train wreck. and, Mm And it's awesome in its own way.
4: And it's perfectly realistic...
1: Well, so Nothing
4: has been messed with.
1: Sometimes the tables have been pre-cut yeah. to facilitate a better fall. Mm-hmm. But it's weird because in the U.S., anyone living in the U.S. knows what kind of tables we're dealing with. These big folding tables like you have at, like a, I don't know, like a church.
4: Yeah, I was going to say like a basement church Basement thing. church
1: food ordeal. Picnic, yeah. Picnic I don't or know. Or in the school cafeteria that kind of thing. Yeah. In Japan, they don't seem to have those. The Japanese version of a folding table is a much more torturous-looking, smaller, slimmer table. So in Japan, when someone falls through a table, they go through those. But in either case, even though it seems more devastating and it's more dramatic, mm-hmm. it's actually better for the person who is falling off of that turnbuckle or, or whatever. It is helping to cushion their fall the same before, they, yeah, same principle before yeah. they hit that concrete. Yeah. And incidentally, one of the articles we were looking at did point out that wrestlers and acrobats. Have a better chance of surviving a plane crash. Was
4: that was that the one from the sixties.
1: Yeah, I believe so.
4: They were saying something like if you practice martial arts, that you could apply some, I guess, some of the psychology of it to your plane crash. Which yeah. I, I suppose, but I don't know. You know, karate chop the air.
1: Yeah. So obviously, yeah. aim for something if you can, if you have any choice and you can position yourself to do so, aim towards something softer. Be that grass, ground, that's great. Swamp, even Hay better. Stacks. Haystacks pillow factory
4: pine trees not so much yeah kind of like skewers they can
1: slow you down but they can also impale you
4: okay so this is what we know so far about what's happening during a crash but pretty soon we may have an actual better idea of the actual principles at hand and the reason is because on april 30th this year 2012 a boeing 727 was deliberately crash-landed in a remote and uninhabited mexican desert On board were cameras and crash test dummies that were used for the experiment. And this was pulled off for a documentary by Discovery Channel and Channel 4. And this documentary is due to be aired later this year and should really give us actually some insight into what's going on during a fatal crash. I'll just mention, too, it's filled with crash dummies. Okay. Not not any... um,
1: No actual Discovery or TLC talent at all? No,
4: no. Cool. I hope we haven't fed into your fears too much and we actually gave you some good information on free-falling and what that's like and actually what the chances are that you would be involved in a fatal crash.
1: I should add that in my own experiences with flying, and again, I never suffered from anything even resembling like crippling fear of, of flying, it got to where I would look at it from a point of view like, all right, it is out of my control. What happens? And, and if I crash and die, then, well, that's going to happen. And the best thing that I can do, given that slight chance, is to realize, hey, I've had a good run so far, or if I'm traveling with my wife, I'll remind myself I'm with the person that means the most to me. So, um, you know, I might as well just hold her hand and see what happens.
4: Which is good advice, but you should know that for 20% of the public, they actually suffer from fear of flying. Yeah. Aviophobia. And so it's very hard to say, like, I'm going to step on this plane, and I'm going to go on vacation, and I'm going to face the possibility of my um, impending mortality.
1: Yeah, but, again, if you die, all right, so, well, I mean, it's going to happen. Death is one of those things. Sure, it's something to be afraid of, but everybody does it, so it couldn't be that big of a deal. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's going to do it eventually, and if you go out in a plane crash, it's at least going to be substantial. I don't know.
4: All right. Okay. Well, on that note...
1: Well, my mouth is growing tired, so I'm only going to read one quick listener mail, but I promise we'll catch up on some of the awesome stuff that we're hearing from other folks in future episodes. (laughs) Here's one from Matthew. Matthew writes in, In regards to contact lenses of the gods, I was immediately cast into whirlwind of imagery revolving around the traditional assembly line workers and their transition from assembly to control of machinery that assembles. This led to the thought of our current medical system and the idea of our medical schools requiring its applicants to be intelligent. In the future, my mind pictures hospitals in the nature of an assembly line with a host of unskilled laborers making sure that the machines are functional and occasionally troubleshoot the aspect of the current educational system crumbling in the face of technology, I feel that until we are able to perfect AI, there will always be the need for those who can retain and develop new knowledge. Cyborgs, as a definition, I believe, will start drifting to that of robots becoming more human. I believe that as technology develops, humans will trend away from machinery and resort to biomechanical, and then eventually the regrowth of appendages and tissue, which we currently replace with two old objects. So there you go. I love it when... Uh podcasters people's minds regarding the future of our civilization so
4: indeed yeah. all right my cyborg friend where can people find us
1: if you're on facebook you can find us at stuff to blow your mind you can do a search on that and that'll take you right to us and if you're on twitter you can find us via the handle blow the mind one word
4: and you can also drop us a line at blow the discovery.com.
5: It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.
5: Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end.